Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with Jonathan Russell, head of policy at Quilliam. During our conversation, Jonathan talks about the state of Islamic extremism in the world, the three founders of Quilliam, all of whom were Islamists earlier in their lives, and the work of Quilliam, the world's first counter-extremism think tank, which was created to generate creative, informed, and inclusive discussions to counter the ideological underpinnings of terrorism. All right, Jonathan, well, thank you uh, very much for, for taking some time, and uh, welcome to The Exchange. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So I would love to start by talking a bit about uh, you personally. I know you work for uh, Quilliam, the organization. I want to talk a little bit about the details of what exactly they do. But if you could maybe uh, explain kind of how you came to the organization and what, what your sort of educational and personal background is that, that sort of launched you into the trajectory of, of Quilliam. Sure. So uh, I've been at Quilliam three years now, and uh, my my background is is one where I studied predominantly languages. I, I focused on French and German at school and, and decided when I left high school, that is, uh, that I wanted to study a new non-European language and broaden my horizons somewhat. Uh, I opted for Arabic, uh, having had a, a deep, uh, deep appreciation for, for both religion and politics as I was growing up. Um, I grew up in a very uh, religious family in, in the Methodist church mm. and, uh, and a labor voting family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I was always interested and, and asked to question those, those things as I, as I grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore I, I'm, I think that's probably why I chose Arabic rather than, uh, something like Chinese or Japanese where there's less open discussion about religion and politics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so from there I, I went to the university of Exeter. I studied Arabic and German and, uh, and eventually Farsi, mm-hmm. uh, for four years. Uh, the second year of which I was living in Cairo, Egypt, mm-hmm. uh, to improve my my Arabic language skills, and uh, and then when I returned, I uh, I decided really at that point to um, to pursue a master's in in Middle Eastern history. I, I found it a bit embarrassing, to be honest, um, having graduated with a with a good degree from Exeter, that I I could speak the language, but but really had had no deep understanding about the history or the culture or the politics. Mm-hmm. Um, despite that being my reason to go and study in the first place. So I went to LSE, the London School of Economics here in London, uh, and studied the history of international relations. And I focused on Middle Eastern history and British intervention in, in the Middle East. Mm. And, um, uh, and from there, I, I focused on the emergence of Iran as a modern nation state, mm. uh, the history of British intervention in, in the Middle East, and the rise of political Islam in the 20th century. Hmm. Uh, and during that time, I interned at Quilliam, mm-hmm. uh, having relatively recently found out about them. Uh, so that was back in 2012. And, uh, and I worked very closely with our uh, head of theological studies, Dr. Osama Hassan, hmm. as his Islamic studies intern. And, um, and I've been at Quilliam ever since. So, so when I graduated from, from LSE, well, in fact, just before uh, Quilliam invited me to, to return and to, to do a bit of work for them in the fundraising department. Mm-hmm. And, and from there, I, I, I moved into the policy team. Uh, and that's where I am now as, as head of policy. Hmm. When, when you were living in the Middle East and studying the Middle East, how did that influence your perspective of, of the Middle Eastern world and, and of, the, of the Muslim world generally? Did you become uh, more religious? Did, did, uh, just, were you just fascinated by, by the history there? How did, how did what you learned there impact the way you viewed that culture? Um, so, so it really is a, a full spectrum experience living in the Middle East. Uh, it's, it's not enough, I don't think, just to study a language without living there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's insufficient living there without studying the language. You get, it's, it's really, I found, a, a delight to all the senses living in a place like Cairo, which is such a busy city, mm. equally such a dirty city, but, mm. but a city where the people are so welcoming uh, and, and don't demand you to speak Arabic whatsoever, but, but really to appreciate everything, even to, to appreciate uh, the full range of, of the food on offer in, in a place like Cairo. 
I found that that speaking the language was was so great, and and it did teach me a lot. It, it taught me. Um, I think the the best example is is the number of taxis that you you have to get when you live in Cairo. I, <laughs> probably four four taxis a day I got um, because, because the the smog is so bad mm. that that you really don't want to walk anywhere and the heat is oppressive. Mm. Uh, and and talking to to taxi drivers, this is the best bit of, of getting the taxi journeys I found. Talking to to four taxi drivers <laughs> a day uh, really does give you a an insight into into Cairoine life. Mm. Um, I, it's the same in every city. The, the taxi drivers know what's going on there. They're the pulse of the city. Mm-hmm. And and we used to talk always in Arabic, and it was great for my language skills. We always used to talk about history and talk about politics. And, and the way into those conversations tended to be either about my religion mm-hmm. uh, or about my, my family background or about why I was studying Arabic and, and my educational choices uh, or about my family and whether I was married and, and that sort of thing. Hmm. Uh, it always got deviated at some point when people tried to convert me to, to Islam or, <laughs> or tried to marry me to their to their daughters. Uh, but but for the most part, we, you know, we we could have really interesting discussions about history and politics and uh, and about religion as well. And and I think as as long as as long as you're open to those sorts of discussions and and are open to, to the fact that the people live very different lives to you. I, I think you can learn an awful lot. And it certainly taught me an awful lot as I was, as I was going. Uh, and, and remember, this was before the Arab Spring. So this was, this was 2009 that I was there. Uh, when, it has to be said, Egypt was not known for being open in its discussions of, of religion and politics. Hmm. Uh, the, the people didn't appear in public to have a voice at that stage. It was only in, in, in January in 2011 when, when that voice started to come together. But, but I suppose, you know, retrospectively, uh, it, it, it's not a strange thing that the Arab Spring happened because people, were, people did have these strong views. People loved talking about them and loved debating about these issues. And you could see just by meeting four taxi drivers a day that they really cared about, about these issues, which all bubbled up. Um, just six months after I after I left that city. Hmm. And what, what sort of insights did you have, both in your study and in living there, talking to the taxi drivers, talking to people who live there? Did did the people strike you as more religious and and more wedded to uh, Islamic ideology, or or less so? What what was sort of the takeaway from uh, your speaking the language and then living there in, in terms of how religious they were? So, so for for the majority of people that I met, it was clear that that religion played. An important part in their in their daily lives and in their personal lives. For for them, overwhelmingly, you know, it was part of their tradition, part of their culture, part of their family values. Um, but what it was not uh, at that stage when I talked to, to all those people, it was not a political uh, manifestation of their faith. They didn't see um, the connection uh, between religion and politics whatsoever. They didn't talk about wanting to, to implement one interpretation of Sharia. They didn't talk about the return of the caliphate. They didn't talk about um, the, the need for, for the Muslim Brotherhood to, to come into to mainstream politics and to, to win an election even. That, those things weren't even contemplated or talked about in, in the conversations that I had with them. Hmm. So, so yes, I got the sense that they were deeply religious, and, and you got the, that broader sense in the city as well, uh, they say you're never more than 30 meters away from, from a minaret. Mm. And um, it was a delight, I thought, to, to wake up to the sounds of, of minarets, uh, particularly on a Friday morning and the, and the big call to prayer on a, uh, as you approach Friday lunchtime. Mm. It was clearly a part of, uh, of their lives, and it was very, very new to me. Uh, but but I, didn't, I didn't feel that it influenced their... Uh, their day-to-day life beyond their personal life at all and beyond the, the communities. It wasn't political whatsoever. Hmm. So talk to me a little bit about what, what exactly Quilliam does and what its goals are. And also if you could speak about, uh, speak to the point of what, what uh, in particular drew you to them to make you want to uh, spend part of your life working for the organization. So, so I suppose following on from, from this, uh, this manifestation of religion as a personal influencer, as I experienced in Cairo, uh, what Quilliam tries to do is to, to tackle uh, when that religious faith, that otherwise peaceful religious faith, is, uh, is exploited politically 
uh, and seeks to, to impose one interpretation of religion over the rest of society or over any other individual. Uh, what we call that is Islamist extremism. So, so we focus on, on how Islam is exploited. Uh, and what we're looking at really is a 20th century phenomenon. We're looking at the Middle East's answer to fascism or communism, hmm. uh, the, the century of ideology really, um, was also bubbling on in, in the Middle East. And, and, and what Quilliam looks at, analyzes, researches is this trend, uh, starting most, uh, most principally with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, in 1928, founded in Egypt through to its, uh, modern manifestation in Islamic State. Uh, and I'm not comparing the two. There is, there's a whole spectrum of, of Islamist movements that have come about in the, in the last hundred years. Uh, but uh, and, and Islamic State are, are very clearly at the fringe of that spectrum. Uh, but but I think Quilliam tries to look at that as a as a holistic, uh, as a trend and as a as a broader movement. And we we seek to do to do three main things really. We seek to uh, reduce people's vulnerability to to radicalization to this form of extremism. We seek to uh, to inform policymakers uh, so that they can can come up with proportionate responses to, to extremism. So it's clear that that it may be necessary and to have a kinetic response and, and carry out airstrikes against Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. But it's clearly inappropriate to do a similar thing against the nonviolent Muslim Brotherhood on the streets of Britain. Um, so, so to help policymakers understand the, the full range of that spectrum and the need for different responses um, to, to different elements on it. Uh, and then we, we seek to, uh, to take the conversation forward in a religious sense as well. Uh, and what I mean by that is if, if Islamist extremists shout the loudest and are the only people offering uh, an option for young British Muslims to, to believe in their form of Islam, then, then they're going to win. What Quilliam tries to do is, is engage with the, the scripture and find uh, synergy between Islam and human rights, between Islam and British values, between Islam and, uh, and liberal democracies to show that, that there, there are other ways of, of integrating and other ways of being British and Muslim rather than having to, to choose and, and prioritize just one element of your identity. Uh, extremists, we know, play on that, that perceived inability to, to synergize the two, uh, and we try to offer people a, a way out by, uh, by giving them something else to believe in. Hmm. Well, uh, and and what, what drew me to, to, to Quilliam in particular uh, was... Was was really growing up. I the the the, the threat of Islamist extremism of, of jihadist terrorism in particular was uh, was very clear. Uh, so in my in my first year at school, um, the first week in fact at high school, nine uh, eleven happened, um, and and during my GCSEs year, so when I was uh, fifteen, turning sixteen, seven seven. Uh, happened the the attacks on the London transport networks, mm -hmm. and so peppered throughout my education has been this um, this threat from jihadist terrorism. Uh, and I remember in my in my third year during my um, during my uh, during my classes, then there there was there was a real sense of relief we we heard from um, from the American president from from Barack Obama when uh, when Bin Laden was was shot by the, by those navy seals we we heard various statements saying that that this this war on terror was over that we'd we'd won it because we'd killed the bogeyman mm. uh, and it seemed to me from all of my study um looking at this this broad 80 year trend that that simply wasn't going to be the case that mm. that you couldn't defeat this ideology simply by taking out the the guy who was its most prominent supporter uh, and and throughout my, my continued study during my master's year at LSE, uh, that's what draw, drew me to Quilliam because it seemed to me that, that Quilliam was looking on the ground for, for answers to these questions and talking to the right people who had influence over, over policy uh, and engaging with, with British Muslims and, and other extremists that, that, 
who thought that they were responding to Islamist extremism, like the far right. Hmm. Um, I, I was attracted by all of those things and, and wanted really to, to, to do a job where I could engage with this, uh, this battle of ideas. Hmm. And, uh, and I was very, very grateful when Majid invited me to, to work full-time here. Hmm. You touched on this a little while ago, and I think this is also a debate that, that we're having in the U.S. currently, is, is, is beginning to try to explain who the people are that are attracted to these jihadist networks, where they come from, what their backgrounds are, what exactly is the, the incentive for them to join these sort of groups. I would love to hear your, your personal perspective or maybe Quilliam's perspective on, on what the, what the draw is for those people. I think I heard once that, um, in the last couple of years, there have been more British Muslims that have joined ISIS than the, the British armed forces. Uh, what, what is, what is your, your take uh, or the organization's take on, on why that's happening? Uh, it's a very good question. It's, it's one we get asked a lot. Um, and, and I think uh, I'm always reminded of, of an advert we have here on the, on the buses in London. And it's an advert to stop uh, people traveling without a ticket. Uh, and the advert says, it's, it's printed across the, the top line where, where people sit on the buses. It says, um, what does a ticket inspector look like? And then the answer is, just like you. Uh, and that's what I think about when, when I think about radicalization and, and profiles of vulnerable people to, to radicalization. The, the truth is that they don't look like anything at all. It's, it's everyone who could be, could be vulnerable to radicalization. Uh, the, there is no one profile that, that fits this form of extremism. It's, it's clear, uh, that what we're talking about here is, uh, buy into, to ideas, uh, and we're looking at humans. So we're looking at, at personal experience and, uh, and various elements that, that might make people, um, more susceptible to, to buying into these ideas. So, so in the broadest sense, um, we look, we consider vulnerability, and, and that vulnerability might be a, a mixture of identity crisis, uh, so not knowing their place in, in the world. That that could be, um, you know, uh, British Muslims who who might not might feel when they go home that they're not uh, that that their family want them to behave like a like a Pakistani family when they're at school. They're being asked to to behave like a British kid when they're in the mosque, they're being asked to be Muslim and that they can't find a way out to synergize all these things. Or it could simply be that, that when young people go off to university and, and lose the support networks and, and, and start to, to have to find their own way, they, 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 they gather that identity vulnerability in, in other ways. The other main thing that, that I, I suppose makes people more susceptible to these sorts of ideas, uh, are grievances. We hear a lot about why foreign policy causes radicalization. Well, I don't think it does, uh, but it's clear that the lots of people who go to Islamist extremism uh, consider the war in Iraq uh, or the uh, lack of intervention against Assad in Syria or, or even the more recent airstrikes against, against Islamic State in Syria uh, as, uh, as chief motivators, as, as important grievances um, that justify their 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 views in a in a warped ideology, and and so 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 I think that's insufficient. I, I we know how extremist groups operate to to exploit these grievances and to exploit this identity crisis. Uh, but it's buy into to those sorts of things that 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 really constitute vulnerability, uh, and 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 I think the the reason for that is. What extremists sell, if anything, uh, is straightforward answers mm. to, to complex questions. It's, it's human. It's entirely human to, to be aggrieved at the world. Mm -hmm. And it's entirely human to, to be confused about the world, to have these identity issues. But what extremists are great at is offering an oversimplified solution uh, that is broad enough to, to catch everyone, but focused enough to, to make it human and to make it personal and to make it feel as if they care about you. Mm. And, and that's a really, really hard thing to, to deal with. Uh, it's, it's why um, a, a misunderstanding of that process is why you get things like um, the, the British policy of stop and search in 2004 that 
that you know, are disproportionately stopped uh, brown and black young men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's why you get people like Donald Trump saying, we've got to stop Muslims coming into, into the country. These things will not help stop radicalization. Uh, but, but I can see why they say them, because they fundamentally misunderstand what this process is. It, it, one of the things I think that's most interesting about the organization is is the genesis of of the story of how the, the organization came to be in the first place. And I would love to have you maybe talk briefly about uh, the the founders of the organization, how they were radicalized at an earlier period of their life and, and what it was, right? I mean, once you begin to deal with people that have that sort of simplistic worldview or, or are uh, abiding by a certain ideology, it can be very difficult to penetrate them. What what is the story of uh, of how the the founders of, of Quilliam came to uh, came to a an Islamist perspective in in the world, and then also in time came out of it and, and began to uh, form an organization like Quilliam? So so there are there are three prominent former extremists at Quilliam, uh, and one of them, Majid Nawaz, was uh, was the founder back in two thousand and eight, and he's written a, an excellent book called Radical. Uh, in which he 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 it's, it's autobiographical, so so it considers his radicalization to uh, to Islamist extremism in the first place, and how he ended up on the leadership committee of a nonviolent Islamist group called Hizbut Tahrir uh, here in the UK, uh, and how he, during that time he he travelled to Denmark and to Pakistan to go and set up. Uh, branches and chapters of, of this organization and how when he when he went to Egypt, uh, as I did, um, on his year abroad to study language, uh, although in his case it was um, curiously in September 2001, hmm. uh, he, he was eventually arrested by uh, Mubarak's government and, and thrown in prison for, for five years for subversion uh, as a political prisoner because he, uh, he was a member, a member of this organization. His uh, it chronicles his, his five years in prison, during which he um, he did several several key things, which I think are, are crucial to him leaving extremism uh, and eventually setting up Quilliam. The first thing he did was he read an awful lot. He read uh, about the religion that he was preaching, and he realised that that there were very few political um, uh, there was no political framework in there that that he was using to, to justify everything that he was saying. Uh, he understood, therefore, in that moment that he'd been manipulated by, uh, by extremists because they'd, they'd assumed that he hadn't read the Quran. And they were true. They were right. You know, only when he was in prison had, did he really engage with the scripture in Arabic uh, and in English. The second main thing uh, was uh, humanity, um, I suppose, in that he was picked up by a prisoner of conscience, by Amnesty International, who, even though they disagreed with his uh, with his political views and with his uh, Islamist extremist views, uh, and the fact that you know caught up in that would have been that he would have, in an instant, uh, put to death uh, gay people would in an instant would have uh, refused women the right to speak or even have a job. Um, what they understood was even though they disagreed with his, with his views, they absolutely defended his right to, to have those views. Uh, and that's why they took him up as a prisoner of conscience. For Majid, that was important because it showed the humanity of everyone that he was struggling against actually treated him like a human. Uh, and I think that, that rehumanized his enemy in his mind and, and softened his approach to, towards them. The, the third main thing was uh, while he was in prison, the 7-7 attacks that I mentioned earlier happened. Uh, and I think he realized that, that all the hate that he was preaching had manifested in a physical attack mm. against his home city. And I think that, that brought it home for him that, that he was saying dangerous things. And in particular, what confused him about that was he'd seen the million men marching uh, on the streets of London, opposing the Iraq war, hmm. more than any other city had managed around the world, more than anywhere in the, in the Arab world, had come together to oppose what they saw as an illegal 
invasion and, and occupation of Iraq. Uh, and so he thought it was completely unjust that jihadist terrorists would then target London, including some of those people who had protested the Iraq war mm. with their violence. And so those three things coming together, you know, uh, education, really, um, humanity, and, and this sense of injustice all came together to, to make him question the very foundations of, uh, of his beliefs and the organization and the actions that he was otherwise prepared to, to carry out in the name of Hizbutahria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that, that prompted his move away from Hizbutahria eventually a year after he, he got let out of prison. Um, and, and soon after that, after he completed his studies, he set up Quilliam. Uh, in 2008, with another former Hizbut Tahrir activist, uh, Ed Hussein, who'd written an excellent book called The Islamist, uh, and they set up Quilliam. And, and the, the stories of the other two uh, two former uh, extremists at Quilliam are, are similar, um, but but one, uh, a chap called Naman Banotman, is a former jihadist and was a member of Al-Qaeda. Um, he is a Libyan, uh, he was of Libyan aristocracy, and was was attracted, very politicized, attracted to to go and join the Arab Afghans uh, and the Mujahideen uh, in the in the war against the uh, the Soviets in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. uh, and there met with Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri uh, and other acolytes who eventually, after the war uh, against Af- uh, against the Soviets, looked to, to set up a new organization, and and he used to live with them. Um, in, in Kosht and, and then I think in the Sudan, uh, where they moved afterwards, uh, but eventually distanced from them, uh, in 1993 when, when Osama bin Laden, uh, switched his focus. Um, for, for Naman, my colleague, he was always about, uh, opposing, uh, Muammar al-Gaddafi, mm. the, the former leader of, of Libya. Mm. And for him, the best people to do that at the time were al-Qaeda who had gathered together these Arab Afghans. Hmm. And, and when bin Laden announced that, that what he wanted to do was, was not go after the near enemy, as he saw it, but go after the far enemy and start, tackling, start attacking um, the United States of America, as, as we know infamously eventually happened in, in 2001, Naman reassessed and thought, well, you know what, I, my focus is still on Gaddafi. Hmm. And, and so he left. Uh, he didn't renounce jihadism. He went back to Libya and set up his own group called the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. Uh, and it was only uh, after several years running that organization and eventually moving to London that he decided to also distance himself from, from that organization and distance himself from violence hmm. to say, well, let's, let's think about political and diplomatic ways of, um, uh, of removing uh, Muammar Gaddafi and and how can we work with civil society to to challenge um, dictatorships as much as challenge Islamist extremism? Uh, and I suppose he was eventually proven right in, in 2011 when the Arab Spring came and removed Gaddafi mm-hmm. with the Libyan uprising. Um, that 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 was a more effective way of doing it than than all the years of, of jihadists focusing on, on Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. And then the third one, just quickly, was mm-hmm. is my colleague Osama Hassan, who is a, an imam. Um, he is a sheikh. He, he, he memorized the Quran at the age of seven. And um, he made himself, he came from a very, very religious family, very, very learned family. Um, two, in fact, two famous uh, theological families came together, and, uh, and that's his heritage. He became a, a Salafi hate preacher, and Salafis are a, uh, they believe in a very literalist version of Islam. They want to, to take the world back to the 7th century, the first generation after the Prophet Muhammad. Mm. And uh, Osama preached this literalism and, and recruited uh, for some time for, for the jihad in, uh, in Bosnia. He recruited the, the then foreign fighter mm-hmm. cause, uh, as it was in, in Bosnia. Uh, but again, uh, in fact, he had his frontline experience in Afghanistan as well, but eventually distanced himself uh, from from jihadism in, in 2005 after the attacks on London hmm. and, and realized that, that as much as he felt uh, it was important to be Muslim, he also felt it was important to be a Londoner 
And with a young family in London, he he realized that his words were coming back to, to, to pose a real threat to him and his family. And he's, he's a remarkable man. He's, he's continued his study. He, he has a, beyond memorizing the Quran at the age of seven, he has a PhD in, in astrophysics, uh, wow. artificial intelligence, and uh, is as much a scientist as he is a, an imam. Hmm. And, uh, and received a lot of criticism, in fact, in 2012 when he... Um, when he he showed that he showed the Islamic justification for evolution, hmm. and uh, and received a lot of criticism from from his former friends as Salafis for 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 questioning the idea that um, that 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 evolution um, happened, hmm. uh, and so he joined Quilliam really as, as a as a as someone who's willing to to stick their neck out and say uh, this is what I believe in. This is the evidence. I'm going to follow this evidence, rather than be believing in something dogmatically uh, and politically to, to pursue this this ideological cause. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious about the the moments of of doubt for the for these men, where the worldview that they held begins to change, if not crumble altogether. And it sounds like for each of them, that was caused by a variety of different factors, education being one of them. Um, what, what is, what, what, what tends to be, from your perspective, the theological arguments or counter-arguments to jihadists or Islamists that, that have been most effective? And maybe, maybe to, to speak about Majid specifically, I mean, what, what was it that was in the war of ideas that happens within all of our brains, what, what were the, the arguments that, that seem to eventually have won out from a theological perspective? And, and how does Quilliam try to utilize the, the, the knowledge that your staff has about the Quran to, to do that in, in the war of ideas in, in society generally? So, so I, I, think, um, I think what these, these three men share uh, in their religious belief is... Uh, is everything that's also shared by, by countless religious people across the world in all major religions. They believe in, in the golden rule. They believe that you should love your neighbor like yourself. And if, if that's the most important thing, and, and in an Islamic sense, uh, what we're talking about is maqasid, the underlying values, uh, the foundations, if you like, of, uh, of the faith. They, they realize that that the most important thing is not literally following scripture, uh, devoid of context, either place or time, uh, and just parroting something uh, from the 7th century, but instead thinking about how the Prophet Muhammad might act if he existed in Britain in 2015, and, and therefore how his words can bear relevance to to our situations here and, and countless other situations around the world. And the, the argument that they all share now is that overwhelmingly Muhammad would be uh, a proponent of human rights and would probably be there um, with the feminists and there with the gay rights activists uh, and there uh, with other people pushing for free speech probably. Uh, and, and I think that that understanding is is what uh, what drives them to to oppose Islamist extremism. Who, who, one way or another, will all agree that that human rights are not universal, and that people shouldn't be equal before the law. They're the two fundamental things in, in any liberal democracy, I think. Mm. And and so so they they've found a way. Um, and, and it's not a duplicitous way. I think it's, it's absolutely what they believe in, uh, of synergizing their, their duties as a fully functioning British citizen in 2015 and being a fully committed Muslim uh, following the teachings of, of, of the Prophet Muhammad. And, and so how is this relevant to, to de-radicalization or how is this relevant to... Um, to, to winning the hearts and minds of people who might might believe differently well i th- i think i think they they all understand how how it can be made personal uh, everyone at some point with their grievances 
will feel that that their human rights have been taken away or that they haven't been applied equally to them. It may be that um, someone has been uh, discriminatory to them and, and hasn't allowed them to practice their faith openly. It may be for, for women that they've been treated differently from men. Um, but, but people will only ever respond to, to or only, uh, many people will only think about human rights when, when their own human rights are taken away. Uh, and I think by, by showing the, the personal impact of this, uh, of this human rights deficit, uh, gets people to think about, uh, their beliefs in, in a slightly different way and, and start to think about why the only thing we can really push for is the universality of these values uh, and why everyone needs to have them if they're going to mean anything at all. Uh, and so, so what we try to do is, is talk about values and talk about these ideas, but apply them to a, to a personal situation. And, and that's what these three in particular are so good at doing because they've had the personal experience themselves of, of going in and out of radicalization. Uh, they, they recognize lots of the traits when we're talking to vulnerable people. They, they recognize lots of the personal experiences. They can say, you know, I haven't just studied this. I feel it. I know they can empathize. And that empathy is, is ultimately what's going to win out. Uh, it, if we're going to solve this and, and solve what seems to be a growing trend of radicalization, it's not going to be a top-down imposition. It's going to be a bottom-up, empathetic civil society approach. Uh, and I can see absolutely the roles of victims in that and of formers. So, so formers are, are who we employ at, at Quilliam. Mm. But there's a role for victims as well, victims of terrorism talking to, to perpetrators and talking to extremists and saying, Look, this is what you created. This is um, this is the manifestation of your ideas, mm. and 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 so here's a very tangible example. Uh, we made over the summer a, a film called Not Another Brother. It's a counter narrative film, and it's it's entirely intended to push back on on some of the things that extremists believe and and lots of ways that vulnerable people are exploited, mm-hmm. and it focuses on a, a foreign fighter who's with Islamic State, uh, reading out a letter from his brother saying, essentially, I'm sorry for putting these ideas in your head. I see how you're acting on them now. And the, the tagline of the film is, don't let your words turn our brothers into weapons. Mm. And, and that, that, for me, is an important message uh, and really sums up what we're trying to do by showing the link between extreme ideas and violent actions. Mm. We can we can start to, to shut down the willingness of people to use that violence and the propensity to, to commit acts of terrorism by questioning the extremist ideas or, or stopping people having extremist ideas in the first place. Hmm. So, so I, think, I think Not Another Brother as a film is, is quite a nice um, uh, pastiche of our general work. Do you? I, I see this in the U.S. to some degree as well, but uh, you know, I, I think one of the reasons why it's difficult for people to publicly condemn or speak out against jihadists and Islamists is often be out of fear, fear of violence or ret- retribution for that sort of public criticism or um, just critique of of the religion or of that ideology generally. Uh, is that something that you? think about or does the organization think about and and if so um or maybe in addition to that has have there been any attempts uh for violence to be rendered against the the organization generally uh yes absolutely so so we have been told a number of times by the police and and others here in the uk that that we have been targeted by extremists and We've been told that, that there will be plots in the future and that we should, um, we should do various things to try and keep ourselves safe. Um, they understand, and, and I commend them for this, they understand that we're not going to stop talking, we're not going to stop questioning these ideas just because we feel unsafe. And so they're willing to work closely with us to, to improve our resilience, if you like. And resilience is the key word for anyone in this field because 
what we're opposing uh, are people who are who don't play by our rules. They're they're willing to use violence indiscriminately. Uh, they're they're not like the the Irish Republicans of of old who phoned in their attacks or um, or or didn't even want. Uh, didn't even want themselves to die. They didn't pursue suicide terrorism. These are people who are willing to to, to go full whack. And so, so I think you have to be resilient, uh, and you have to believe in it, and you have to uh, be willing to um, to to stick at it when the going gets tough. Uh, but the important thing is, we you know, on our side of this debate. Nobody's asking you to die for these views. It's only on the jihadist side that, that people are demanding that of you. Mm. So, so resilience is, is key. Um, and I can absolutely understand why, why some people aren't willing to make that, that jump. And actually, um, I, I, think, I think people like, like us at Quilliam do it so that most people don't even have to think about it. Mm. Uh, and it, it need not uh, affect their daily life. But it would make our life a lot easier. It would make the the struggle against uh, Islamist extremism a lot easier the more people that come into it. Because um, if we can build critical mass against this this ideology, against these narratives, and and against this movement, then then we will start to get security in numbers, and I, and I think that's important. Hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the debate here in the UK is always about the role of Muslim communities in tackling Islamist extremism. It seems to me that uh, the British Muslims might have a, you know, more of an impact than I will in, in tackling extremism if, if they were to fully understand it, because they would be able to identify extremists in their midst. They'd be able to make more compelling arguments against the exploitation of that theology to, to make this Islamist ideology. And they'd be able to, to show positive examples of, of their engagement and, and integration with British society uh, in a way that, that I simply can't as a, as a non-Muslim um, uh, employee of Quilliam. Hmm. But, what I'm, but what I don't ask of them is to apologize for Islamist extremists. And I think that's very, very important. That's a misconception very often that, that asking, asking Muslim communities to do something to work with us hand in hand to counter extremism is very different from asking them to apologize. I don't think they have anything to apologize for. Mm. Uh, and so we're, we're asking people to be proactive rather than reactive on this. Mm. And, and the, the question then broadens out beyond that to say, well, actually, it's not just Muslim communities. There's a role for all sorts of people to play in countering extremism, whether, whether that's students in universities, whether that's artists, uh, whether that's uh, gay rights activists or, or, or people who care about women's rights or, or just anyone um, who cares about human rights. Uh, people have got to be willing to, to stand up and and say that, okay, these people may come from a different cultural background, they may believe in different things from we do, but our human rights red lines are exactly that, and, uh, and we should call people out when they don't, uh, when they don't follow them. Uh, and and so, so, yes, I, I think it's important that beyond Muslim communities, a broader civil society response is, is engendered, uh, and, and part, of that, uh, part of that resilience is going to come from, from being confident in what we're tackling and what we're not tackling. And so let's be absolutely clear, we're not shutting down freedom of religion. We're not criticizing uh, the right for Muslims to be Muslims. And we're not looking to dismantle Islam. We don't think Islam poses a, an existential threat to the UK or to the Western world. What we are looking to, to tackle is Islamist extremism, a highly politicized, often violent manipulation of Islam that is pursued by just a fraction of, of British Muslims and, and Western Muslims, but who make our lives uh, a lot harder and make the lives of Muslims around the world an awful lot harder than they need to be. Hmm. Last question I want to ask you is, is about the future. Um, how do you see, right, the, the trends that we've been talking about of, of how how, how much attention this is getting? You said earlier that that they seem to be the loudest voice right now, the the extremists, and I, I would I would agree with that. How do you see the the next 
uh, decade or, or even the next generation unfolding in terms of what you would view as being the, the likely outcome, right? I mean, you, your organization and you personally are involved in this war of ideas. How do you, what, what's your, what's your um, probability in terms of this, just a general outlook of, of how, how extremism in, in Islam will unfold? And, and secondly, what can an average person, uh, both for, for average Muslims and non-Muslims throughout the world, do to help in, uh, in the effort to try to... Um, hold as you said human rights above above all ideology in in the world to to try to um incentivize people to to move away from these extremist views what what can what can people do to to try to help in that uh in that effort sure so so i think uh i think at this stage um i would expect the the world to get worse rather than better in the in the immediate future mm-hmm. um and, and I say that with a heavy heart because it probably means I'm not doing my job very well. Um, but but I think that that we're seeing the continuation of a trend, and uh, and we're seeing time after time groups get more extreme. Uh, what that means is that they they get more exclusivist. They they do things like Islamic State have done and tried to hold down territory. They. They, they get more violent as they get more exclusivist and <clears throat> they get more erratic, which means probably that um, as we start to build a unified response against Islamic State, they will try and uh, fight their way out of it. They'll probably commit terrorist attacks um, at increased rate in, in the Western world and they will be very, very defensive about the borders that they think they have. Uh, they will look to shock us. They will uh, probably um, start to turn more on Shia Muslims uh, in, in Iraq and Syria uh, and also more on, on Sunni Muslims who don't join up with them and in that way become more takfiri, more exclusivist in, their, in applying their dogma to, to refuse anyone who doesn't sign up to their, to their narrow worldview. And uh, the the one benefit of that is that they'll probably get smaller and smaller. Um, and if we can respond in the right way, not simply seeing it as a military threat, but seeing it as a uh, as a full spectrum threat, as a uh, as an ideological threat, as a narrative threat as well. And if we can respond in the right way, then um, then then I think we can we can uh, take advantage of their getting smaller. Uh, but crucially, we've got to offer an alternative to, to people who might otherwise be tempted. And, and so I think how we respond to, to that offering an alternative is, is really going to be the key influencer in, in how these, these longer trends go. And that's an alternative for, for Western Muslims. We've got to show, uh, that there's something else for them to believe in. But it's also an alternative for the people of Syria and Iraq between a secular dictator who's willing to kill his own people, Bashar al-Assad, and a theocratic dictator who's willing to kill his own people in Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. We've got to show um, the millions millions of people in Syria and Iraq that, that their future can include human rights and can include peace and stability. And so it may not look like um, uh, we are close to a a diplomatic or political solution at the moment. And it may seem that the only option at the minute in that part of the world is a military one. Uh, but, but I think we've got to continue pursuing these other options as well. Uh, and, and really if we see this as a generational struggle and we see the poisonous ideology as, as the root cause of this struggle, um, as well as, uh, as all the, the other political, uh, causes in, in the region, then, then I think we should be investing in, in trying to find that middle ground uh, and trying to find an alternative for the people of Syria and Iraq. And, and so, so I think Quilliam's work is going, to be, um, is going to be increasingly international. At the moment, we, we do an awful lot domestically, but this is a global struggle. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think we're going to be doing a lot more uh, in partnership with other countries in Europe 
And I hope with other countries uh, like the US and, and Canada and Australia. Uh, but I hope also we can we can start to to travel more around the Middle East and talk to talk to to, to Middle Eastern communities who, quite frankly, are tired of dictators, whether they're religious or not, hmm. uh, telling them how to live their lives. And I, I think we've got to offer them hope. When people don't have hope, they turn to, to dark, dark solutions. We've got to offer the people of the Middle East hope, and, and I hope that Quilliam can, can take a role in that. What can everyone else do? Well, I, I hope that um, that they can help Quilliam grow, um, not just financially, uh, although as a small not-for-profit in London, that's that's obviously welcome, uh, but, but in supporting our, our values and in... In challenging extremism when they see it, when jihadist insurgencies come into to Western Europe, as we've seen in the last month in, in Paris, for example, uh, it's clear that they, they can only thrive when there's an atmosphere that, that tacitly supports them. If we can shut down this, this nonviolent Islamist atmosphere in which these jihadists thrive, then, then we can start to... to uh, starve jihadists from from oxygen and it's it's only then that we can start to make real progress uh, and so people around the world i think can help by by challenging extremism when they see it but doing so in a in a human rights friendly way and in a non-profiling way it's only through through having a firm values base that we're going to make progress on this uh, and so i hope that that other organizations can pop up that that they can continue to be interested in this in this field, but that interest won't be a repressive interest or a, a bigoted uh, interest or a, uh, a response to extremism that falls back on more forms of extremism. I hope that people around the world can can help out um, online by challenging extremism when they see it, or offline in in offering European Muslims uh, and Middle Eastern societies hope uh, and giving them. Uh, something else to believe in uh, and engaging with them as, as humans. Uh, this, this is a human problem. We're going to need human solutions. Very good. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and taking the time. I, I really do appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Good to meet you. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about the exchange, want to listen to episodes online or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. Thank you.